The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello. Hello, that sound you hear is us tooting our own horn and celebrating a milestone, the 500th episode of the Humble Little Podcast. We will have some listener emails, some thoughts on Meg White, some thoughts on Boswell and Johnson, a Mike Palindrome cameo, and special guest Margot Livesey today on the History of Literature. <laughs> Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I feel excited like I'm 10 years old and being driven to my very own party, a birthday party, or like I'm a dad taking my own kids to a birthday party. Maybe we're attending one of their friends' parties, or maybe it's one we ourselves are hosting at a pizza place or a, a swimming pool, or I'm excited because I'm, I'm hoping it all goes well. 500 episodes. Good job, little show. You made it. So now it's time to celebrate. So we're going to take off the necktie today and unbutton the collar and have some fun. I previewed all of that already, what we have in store for us. So let's jump right in. I'm Jack Wilson, by the way, your host. We will start with an email from Sarah, who writes, Dear Jack, I just listened to th the Three Roads Back episode and was particularly struck by the joy in the thought of renewal discussion. I wish everyone could hear this, particularly today, the first day of spring, and at a time when hope and renewal is a bit easier to believe in than a few years ago. Thank you for consistently bringing forth lessons from the ages that help us live more connected, thoughtful, fulfilling, and yes, joyful lives. I continue to be stumped that Tucker Carlson's ratings appear to be higher than yours. Thanks for fighting the good fight and making us thank your pal, Sarah. Okay. <laughs> thank you, Sarah, for those lovely words. I'm very glad to hear that I have made a pal. That Three Roads Back episode, look, the book is highly recommended, and the guest is one of our favorites, Megan Marshall. Pulitzer Prize winning Megan Marshall. I'm glad to hear that it struck a chord with you. Now, as to your being stumped, Tucker Carlson's ratings appear to be higher than yours. Well, thank you for throwing that appear to be in. I'm pretty sure they are higher than mine. Let's not confuse quality for quantity, though, or quantity for quality. He might have more listeners, but I will take my listeners over his anytime. That said, I do wish I had more listeners. It would certainly help me make these college tuition payments as I find myself in year one of the projected eight years of payments and thinking, my goodness, how am I going to get this done? What am I going to have to sell off before it's all over? An arm? 
<laughs> a leg. I'm very proud of my oldest, of course, and I'm looking forward to seeing what my youngest does eventually, too. But it's not so fun to be broke, so maybe I need to take a page out of the Tucker Carlson book. I'm sure he has no trouble at all paying for his kids to go to school, and not just because he inherited a fortune from the frozen, frozen fish stick industry. His job pays him well. I don't really watch the show, but I'm assuming that it's like most cable and local news shows where the more fear he generates, the more his listeners tune in and any promises to save them all from the fears that he's instilled in them, save them all with his battling spirit. Can I translate that to literature? Maybe I should try. How about this? Is Jane Austen coming for your job? Well, hmm, Jane Austen has been dead for quite a while. Is zombie Jane Austen coming for your job? Coming up tonight. Why a community in Florida has established a no zombie Jane law. We'll talk to the mayor about fighting the good fight and help keep you safe. Hmm. Maybe I don't have the knack for this. Well, we'll keep plugging away, Sarah. <laughs> Taking our listeners in dribs and drabs as they come. Next up, Ray. Dear Jack, I hope this email finds you and your family well. It's been almost three years since I sent the last email to you. I'm still a devoted listener to your podcast. A little update since then. In the postscript to my email, I said I was afraid of the Russians. I'm happy to say that my fear has been slightly reduced as I read Anna Karenina over the fall with a little time off to watch the Phillies make a run to the World Series. I couldn't believe how good it was. Well, I mean, I knew it was probably good, being it's Tolstoy and all, but I was surprised how readable and fun it was. After finishing it, I was surprised how, in the grand scheme of things, how little of the story is about her. Believe it or not, I didn't know about her tragic end until I got to it. Very Bovary. It's amazing how in novels of this time and early Hayes Code movies, they felt the need to punish the so-called bad woman at the end for her sins. No thought of Steva jumping in front of a moving train? He was worse. In other news, I'm sad to say I never did finish Magic Mountain. I know Mike loves it, but I never really attached to any of the characters. Maybe in five years I'll have another go at it. My favorite book I've read so far has been Lolita. What an amazing book. I never realized how funny it was and how great a character H.H. is. You do read it and sometimes think this guy's not so bad, then realize, what am I saying? He's a monster. He has a way of charmingly tricking you into forgetting how young she is and how horrible he is. I have revamped my top five novels. Not that you care, but I can't resist lists. One, Lolita. Two, Invisible Man. Three, The Sun Also Rises. Four, Another Country. Five, Anna Karenina, parentheses, with pride and prejudice right there. You should do an episode with Mike and list your top five. It'll be fun to listen to Mike go on and on about Infinite Jest and Magic Mountain. It's been a while. Well, anyway, in sports talk radio parlance, thanks for taking my call and keep up the great work. I'll catch up with you on Monday and Thursday. Ray, City of Brotherly Love. Okay, Ray from Philadelphia, thank you so much for checking in and for sharing your experiences with Tolstoy and Nabokov. I get such a... I really got a kick out of your email, Ray. 
And Mike, I know Mike has not been on the podcast as much lately, mostly because of scheduling issues. He is a busy guy. He's in Paris at the moment, living the good life like the Francophile he is. But he will be here for our episode on Persuasion, one of his favorite books. Here's the difference between Mike and me, I think. I texted him and said, hey, a listener would like to know your top five novels. Is that too hard to do? Let me know if you have some thoughts. And I said that part, is that too hard to do? Because for me, my own top five, if I have to make a top five, it would take me days, maybe weeks, maybe months. And then I'd say, I, I can't do it. I, I can't choose. I have to choose a hundred or I have to choose five from each century or five men and five women, something to expand the choice. I can't easily pick. Well, Mike texted me his top five in two minutes. And then before I could even respond to that, he texted me his top five poetry collections a minute after that. <laughs> he was ready to go. So here they are. Let's start with his poetry collections, which he counted down from five to number one. Number five, The Complete Auden. Hmm. I agree. That's essential. Number four, Actual Air by David Berman. Ooh, that's a sneaky good pick. Interesting. Coming from Mike. Number three, Thread Sons by Paul Salon. Mike has good taste, people. Number two, Ariel by Sylvia Plath. I figured we'd get some Plath. And number one, did not surprise me, Self-Portrait in a Convex Mirror by John Ashbery. Of course. That's very Mike. So there we go. Pretty impressive. I'd probably have Emily Dickinson in there somewhere, maybe Dante, but I wouldn't mind taking Mike's top five with me on a vacation. Is David Berman a poet you know? Maybe I should read one of his poems. Why not? This is episode 500 and all bets are off. We're celebrating. Let's hear Mike's list of novels first, though. Listener Ray predicted two of them, Infinite Jest and Magic Mountain. Did they make the cut? We will see. Here we go. This one Mike sent me, uh, this time he sent me one through five in that order. I'm not sure if these are ranked, but this is how they came up for him. Number one, The Magic Mountain. No surprise. Number two, Tender is the Night. Number three, To the Lighthouse. Number four, A Heart So White. And number five, That Proust Novel. I believe he means Remembrance of Things Past, or as you might call it, In Search of Lost Time. Most people would take it over Jean Santier, I think. <laughs> Kidding, of course. Definitely means Remembrance of Things Past. Mike's Javier Maria's Love is wonderful. We did an episode on that early on. And he's liked Tender is the Night for at least 30 years. I remember exchanging letters with him about it. Once upon a time, we are fascinated by the different versions, the one that starts on the beach and the one that doesn't. Very different books in those different editions. Maybe it's the best book I can think of that has two different editions like that that are both prominent. We might have to do an episode on that book at some point. Okay, how about a David Berman poem? This is the first poem from the collection Actual Air. It's called Snow. Snow. Walking through a field with my little brother Seth, I pointed to a place where kids had made angels in the snow. For some reason I told him that a troop of angels had been shot and dissolved when they hit the ground. He asked who had shot them, and I said, a farmer. Then we were on the roof of the lake. The ice looked like a photograph of water. Why, he asked, why did he shoot them? 
I didn't know where I was going with this. They were on his property, I said. When it's snowing, the outdoors seem like a room. Today I traded hellos with my neighbor. Our voices hugged close in the new acoustics. A room with the walls blasted to shreds and falling. We returned to our shoveling, working side by side in silence. But why were they on his property? He asked. <laughs> That's David Berman from Actual Air. Number four on Mike's list of favorite poetry collections. Our next email is from Christine, who writes, I discovered your podcast about six months ago. Your episodes on Milton inspired me to read Paradise Lost. It's been on my TBR list for decades. My daughter and I are reading it together. I took your advice and listened to it first. Today I listened to your episode of The Decameron. Did you ever revisit it? Thank you for your insight, your calming voice, and intelligent analysis of books and authors is a bright light for me. Okay, Christine, thank you so much for the email. You may know that I have a weakness for hearing about pairs of people either listening to the podcast or reading books together. I just love hearing these stories. Reading Paradise Lost with one's daughter. I've always wished that I had a daughter. Nothing against my boys. I just wished I could have a daughter too. And now I have a very particular wish that I could have a daughter and read Paradise Lost with her. But oh well, it's not good to be jealous. I must be content with what I do have. I'm very glad to know that I helped give you that nudge, Christine, into the world of Milton and Paradise Lost, and that you're reading something I love too. And then here's the kicker. I asked Christine if I could share her email with the listening audience, and she said, yes, please do. You have also inspired us to read The Magic Mountain as well. <laughs> So let's keep track here. Jack does 500 episodes and inspires one book. Mike is here for what? 50? A tenth as many episodes. And he inspires the Magic Mountain too. His enthusiasm for the Magic Mountain is like the engine that powers the show. A secret engine. A secret source of strength. I think I have a Thomas Mann expert coming up soon, by the way. We'll be interviewing him or her. I can't remember. Just saw that it was Tomas Mann and thought, oh, of course, we have to do this. <laughs> Here's an episode we'll be doing for Mike. I'm sure we'll be magic mountaining plenty in 2023. I did not revisit the Decameron, by the way, Christine. I had a, an idea that I would read blocks of stories and decide if they were all outdated or if there were any that held water today. Nothing against reading for heading back into a historical period and seeing what people found interesting back then, but I just wondered, would they hold up? Would they compare with the best of our short stories today, or were they all hopelessly rooted in their time? I think you know what I mean by that, with some slapstick endings, or would they get a little boring? Would they, would they dwell too much in cliches, or things that, would they be full of humor that we no longer find funny? I thought that would be a fun project. But then I got distracted by other authors and works and other episodes, and I haven't gone back to that as well. Maybe someday. And with that, Flannery O'Connor Part 2 is clearing her throat and clicking her fingernails on the table. Yes, dear, I know you're on the list too. I haven't forgotten. <laughs> we, need to, we need to get that episode up at some point. 
I haven't forgotten, nor have the listeners. Okay, one more. Oh, one other thing about Christine's email. She says, your calming voice is one of the bright lights. And here I, I wrecked it with my Carlson-esque fear-mongering. Zombie Jane Austen, scaring people into listening more. Well, I hope we didn't lose you, Christine. Let me assure you that Jane Austen, zombie or otherwise, is not coming for your job or your house. Maybe for your gloomy spirits. But that's the only thing she's planning to remove. Our final email comes from Thanasis. Hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Subject, greetings from a Greek citizen of the world. Hey, Jack, there is no way to thank you enough for everything you do about literature and the human spirit in general. I would like to share with you my little history, some thoughts, and one dream. My name is Thanasis. I come from Greece, and this year I'm doing my master's in the Netherlands. To support my studies, I have to work every weekend at a warehouse that is full of boxes. I use a little clerk, driving through the aisles and collecting boxes full of products. The last three months, I've been listening to your podcast while I'm working, and your voice softens my endeavors to carry on all this weight that kills my back. I listened to the last 150 episodes, and there are 350 more to go. It is because of you that I don't hate my job, because your words are watering my soul. This is why I love listening to you, and I tell all the literary people I know about your podcast. Personally, I don't believe that literature is dead. Okay, parentheses. I didn't say it was dead. I said it might be dying. But anyway, back to the email. As long as man lives, literature will not perish. Literature is not just words, but rather it's about all these stories that shape and give the world its form. This was our take from Charles Baxter when he was here as well. Literature is not dead also because there are people like you, people who are armed with the passions of reading, exploring, and sharing what they love with their fellows. I feel honored that you have had so many ancient Greek writers on your podcast, but at the same time, I feel a bit forgotten since there are no episodes with any contemporary Greek writers. He then makes the case for Nikos Kazantzakis, which we can say, that's definitely, we'll save his, his case that he makes for another time. That definitely would be fun to do an episode on the Greek author of The Last Temptation of Christ and many other excellent works. One of the one of the best authors who didn't win the Nobel Prize of the 20th century. Okay, back to the email. I hope that you will find some time and include him in one of your next 500 episodes. Well, if we do another 500, we will hopefully get to everyone. Okay, currently, the email says, I'm reading Anna Karenina for the first time, and I find myself approving Faulkner's top list. I'm an aspiring writer, and one of my dreams is to start a writing school that will offer the opportunity for people like us to express themselves through this unique way, the way of writing. Keep up the spirit. You are doing great. Well, thank you, Thanasis. And I would like to say, likewise, keep up the spirit. Aspiring writer, Greek citizen of the world, reading literature to help you get through life and your job, thinking big thoughts, and with a writing school as an aspiration. I am humbled that such a spirit as yours, is enjoying the show. I want to launch into some thoughts now before we get to our special guest, but one more note from Thanasis. I wrote to him and said, can I share this with listeners? Do you mind? Etc. And he wrote back a beautiful note, and it had this as a P.S. P.S. I'm sorry, but I have to admit that 
You may be one of the most educated people when it comes to literature, and your knowledge and opinion make you wise in my eyes, but I like you the most for something else. That is the way you love your boys, the way you are a father to them. I was unlucky to have an alcoholic father, and one of my dreams is to become the father I wanted to have. Seeing you, seeing how you try to hold yourself from crying when you are sharing your moments and memories from this journey motivates me and gives me a standard I want to meet later in my life. This may be even a greater contribution that you bring to my life. Thank you very much for that. It is an honor to be your listener and unknown friend. Cheers, Jack. Thanasis, this brought tears to my eyes once again. Good luck to you. I'm sure you're going to be a great dad someday. It is the best feeling in the world. A great responsibility and lots of hard work, but it brings a daily opportunity. You have the opportunity every single day to be the best possible person you can be, and you see those effects blooming right in front of your eyes. All your energy pours into it like water and sunlight on a flower bed, and what comes up are like miracles. Nothing in the world will make you happier, including literature, although sometimes I feel like literature can come close, and we don't have to choose. That's the good thing. Okay, Let's take a quick break and come back with Meg White and Dr. Johnson. Is that the first time those two have ever been paired together? Well, <laughs> I guess that's what we do here. We will do that next. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes... The Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app, or Wondery Kids Plus, in Apple Podcasts. Is that the saddest party sound ever? <laughs> Something about that sounds particularly pathetic. Okay, so Meg White, the drummer for the White Stripes. Recently, she was in the news again, although she herself is out of the public eye. She's retreated into solitude. I'm fascinated by her. I heard a, an interview with her ex-husband, Jack White, when they were still together. He's a genius, by the way, kind of a throwback musical genius, a guitar hero. You know how some people are ahead of their time? He's kind of behind his time. He belong, He deserved to be born in the 50s, I think, so he could could have been prominent in the 60s and 70s with guitar gods like Jimmy Page and Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton and guys like that. He would fit right in. Well, he's done pretty well for himself anyway. He's truly amazing. 
his talent. And the story goes that one day he was playing the guitar and his wife, Meg, sat down at the drums with having no lessons or anything, no experience. And she started playing and what he heard stopped him in his tracks. It was a sound that he said was like a child playing drums. It was so primitive. And he said, I didn't want her to practice. I didn't want her to take lessons. I just wanted her to play like that. I didn't know anyone else who could. And he said, I couldn't play drums like Meg. And then he could put his guitar, which is incredibly ornate, his guitar playing, it's ornate and evocative and variable and expansive. He could layer his guitar on those drums, and his vocals are similar. He sings in different characters, like Paul McCartney does. And he said, look at the white stripes. It's three colors, red, white, and black. Their creativity comes out of reducing yourself to this, limiting yourself in this way, and then building on that. What can you make out of just three colors? What can you make out of just three instruments? Vocals, guitar, and drums. Or vocals, piano, and drums. And the drums is going to be basic. More basic than any, any drummer, any professional drummer can really be. Sometimes it's long stretches of just quarter notes. It's going to be primal, driving, elemental. It's Meg playing the drums. And there's something about it. And as he described it, it fascinated me. I was fascinated by his fascination that this triggered his creativity in this way. He quoted Picasso saying something like, it takes a lifetime to paint like a child. And here was Meg playing these drums in a way that could lead him to bursts of creativity for the sounds that he wanted to convey. Anyway, the Whites, the whites Meg and, and Jack, were in the news. Some critic tweeted that the White Stripes would have been even better if they had a halfway decent drummer, and Jack White responded with a poem. And lots of other musicians, including Questlove, said, you just don't get it. You don't get what music is. You don't need fancy drumming. You need drumming that works for the song and connects with the listener, they were all defending Meg White. And I love that. I love that it's it's reduced to its core. Like Michelangelo saying that sculpting is easy. You just take away the stuff that doesn't belong. And it reminded me of a time when I did that in my life. I'm not talking about art now. We're talking about life. I was in Taiwan. This was after college. I put all that college book learning and studying and all those friends in my past, a clean break. I went on my own with a suitcase of clothes and some cash that I'd saved up. Not much, but enough to get started and a passport with a visa. And I landed in Taiwan, traveled from Taipei down to Kaohsiung, where my cousin was living and working, and he picked me up at the bus station and took me to his apartment. I had almost nothing, a few books to start, but the work was plentiful. And he had me buy a motorcycle, which is a whole other story, maybe I'll tell someday, and a woman tried to break into my bedroom from the outside, even though we were living on eighth or ninth floor, which is another story for another day. The story I want to tell today is about my landlord, a guy named Steve, my cousin's best friend. Steve had been in Taiwan for a while. He had, in fact, gotten married there and had two little kids. He and my cousin had been in the Peace Corps together in the Philippines several years before, and then neither one really could bear to be home there just wasn't enough action going on. 
for them. So he was in Taiwan teaching along with some other expats. And I joined this crew and they played Risk with some Canadian guys on a homemade Risk board. And there were long nights with peanuts and Taiwan beer and laughter and driving home on the motorcycles, all of them making money teaching English, which I was about to do as well. And then we had to leave our apartment that we were first in, and I had to find a new place, and Steve was going to be my landlord. His father-in-law owned a little apartment, and it needed a tenant. And Steve said, well, here's Jack Wilson. He needs a place. I could rent it out to him. He thought having an American would make life easier for him. And it was perfect for me. It wasn't much, but it was pretty great. A couple of bedrooms, a living room, a kitchen, laundry laundry machines right on the balcony, a bathroom with a shower, the balcony that could show you the mountains on the rare day when the smog wasn't too heavy. And the only thing I worried about was whether I could cover the rent. It wasn't that expensive, but it felt like it was because I wasn't used to having a whole place like this to myself. I had lived with my parents, of course. I had lived in a dorm lots of other people. In Italy, I lived in an apartment with roommates and with two different families. I had lived with roommates back in Chicago in apartments, two at a minimum, sometimes up to five. Everything was split. In this place, I'd be responsible for all the rent, all the utilities, everything. Nothing shared. And I said, well, this looks good, but can you give me a time to find a roommate? I've never lived on my own before. And Steve's eyes got wide. And he nodded his head seriously and said, don't do that. You should take it on your own. I'll lower the rent. And I said, why would you do that? And he said, you need to, if that's what it takes, I'll do it. You need to see. And I said, need to see what? I still didn't get what he was driving at. And he said, look, you might not get this chance ever again. You'll never know who you are. You'll always be driven or defined in part by the people you're living with. But if you live on your own, you will see who you are. You'll make all those decisions. It really struck me. Nobody had ever said this to me before. And now this guy who I viewed as a sage of sorts, he had done some hard years of living. He had had some wild experiences. And now there was a domesticated version of that formerly wild person who had a wife and two kids. And it was advice I couldn't ignore. So I paid the money and got down to the business of seeing who I was. And maybe this could only have happened in Taiwan. I had stripped my past away, too. I had stripped my language away. I had no friends from home to stop by, no family to visit. I had basically my own body and not enough possessions to fill even a small closet. I could hold everything I owned in one hand in a suitcase. And then I got rid of the suitcase. It was a big drag to have it. I would need a backpack from there on out. I had a motorcycle and a helmet, some clothes, and almost nothing else. I slept on a mattress on the floor. I had a job that paid cash, and I had me. So, who was I? What would I do? I had my job, and I liked going to the tea houses and sitting and studying Chinese on flashcards. I liked eating tofu and vegetables and dumplings. I liked drinking bottles of green tea and oolong tea that I bought at the 7-Eleven. 
I liked talking to my students, and I liked going to the library and reading newspapers and borrowing books. I brought the books home and piled them on my floor next to my mattress. There was an air conditioner in the window, and I turned that on and stripped off my shirt. It was very hot. And I lay on the mattress, reading down the piles of books, working my way through them, and then replacing those with a new pile. I was reading Toni Morrison and the Brontes and William James and Graham Greene, Nabokov, E.M. Forster, whatever was available at that library or in the English-language bookstores. Dickens, I read Saul Bellow, and my old professor Richard Stern and their friend Philip Roth, Shakespeare, and Plato. I was discovering who I was, and it was this. It was me plus books. And my favorite book that year was Boswell's Life of Johnson. I'd been wanting to read it since college when my roommate had taken a course called Dr. Johnson and His Circle, and he used to come back to the apartment full of great stories of things Dr. Johnson had said to Boswell, witty repartee. It seemed like my kind of thing. Even better than reading Raymond Carver, I had found, was reading him and thinking about what you were reading and talking to good friends who were also reading him and thinking about him and had ideas about him. And here was a whole thick book where these guys had been doing that hundreds of years before, but in London, a city I'd seen and adored. And with this background of Latin and poetry and all this other learning, and they had this zest for life and for literature, and they made a living at it all with their writing, with their thinking, with themselves on the page, just as John Updike had and Toni Morrison and all these other people I was commuting with from my mattress on the floor. I was reduced to the bare minimum, like Meg White's drumming. And now I could add the Jack White guitar. It could go wherever it wanted and sound however it wanted. It could growl and tease and whisper and shout and weep and sing. And what the guitar was for me was to pour my mind and my heart and my soul into those books and let them take me on whatever magic carpet ride those genie authors wanted me to take. That's who I was. I was the books. That's how it felt anyway. And then years later, I had another experience. I was back home now and slowly all the things started to build up so that you do kind of lose yourself. For years, I read a book a day. That was just standard. I didn't feel right if I didn't start a book in the morning and have it finished by the time I went to bed. Unless it was so enormous, it was reasonable to finish it up in a couple of days. And then I had a stretch where I would get 10 or so books at the library each day at my lunch hour. And then at night I would read the introduction and first chapter of all of them. And then I'd return those books the next day just to try to take in even more. And if the book was truly good, I might read more. But mostly I just stuck to the beginnings. And I read astronomy and history and biology and botany and philosophy and whatever else they had at the Ann Arbor Public Library, which was a wonderful resource. And gradually, as Steve might have predicted, my life accumulated other people, my girlfriend, then fiancé, then wife, my kids, my friends, my co-workers, and the stripped-down life of me on the mattress in Taiwan felt like a long-ago dream. And then social media happened, chipping away, dissolving the real me even further, as I disappeared into a kind of avatar of 21st century identity building, meaning links and picks rather than flesh and blood. And someone tagged me in a post about 
hey, share pictures of your favorite books, one each day for 10 days or something. And one of my friends said, well, I assume you'll be posting Boswell's Life of Johnson soon. And I thought, no, in fact, that hadn't even occurred to me. And then I thought how strange that was. It was strange that a friend who had known me for as long as he had made that assumption. It was a reminder that at one time in my life, that must have been me for him to associate a particular book with me like that. He was right, of course. At different times in my life, that picture could have included The Great Gatsby or The Sun Also Rises or the Patrick O'Brien Aubrey Maturin series or Proust or The End of the Affair by Graham Greene. And at one point in my life in Taiwan and probably for some years after, it was the unabridged Life of Johnson, Boswell's book, which had meant so much that world I could disappear into and feel like I was my true self somehow. And in finding that book, I had found myself. I still plan to do an episode on that book. Maybe that'll be episode 1000. This is not that episode exactly, but I've been doing a project for the last year or so. Thanks to our listener who posed the question, what do you want your last book to be? The last book you will ever read. It's been wonderful asking guests this question, which I do at the end of just about every interview, because it's reducing them the way I was once reduced to this Meg White basic drumbeat, which sounds a lot like the beating of a heart, doesn't it? And all the rest is quiet. Your body is at peace. The days of striving are over. Where does your mind want to be? Where does it want to go? What book will take you there? I couldn't answer that question, and I admired my guests who could, including the ones who wrestled with the question and, and decided that they could not decide. I was fascinated by their choices, and so here we go. We have Margot Livesey joining us, who is herself an incredible writer and reader, one of our favorite guests here at the History of Literature, and I sent her four of the responses, my last books from four of our previous guests. And then I asked her for her own thoughts. And because I mentioned Boswell's Life of Johnson to her, and she's been reading her way through it ever since, I wanted to see what she thought of that as a potential choice. It's on my short list. Would it be on hers as well? When you reduce yourself to the most essential elements and all the other trappings of life, all the other desires and fears are gone and it's just you in that room, you and your life and your mind. What else belongs there with you? Boswell and Johnson, are they there too? Or something else? Margot Livesey joins us after this. Okay, here we are, episode 500, joined by author and creative writing professor Margot Livesey, whose works include The Boy in the Field, The Flight of Gemma Hardy, and The Hidden Machinery, Essays on Writing. Margot, this is a pleasure. You're a fan favorite and a personal favorite, too. Welcome back to the History of Literature. It's a delight to be back on the show, Jack. Thank you so much for inviting me. So, Margot, do you know how many times you've appeared on the History of Literature? I think this might be my third or fourth time. It's your third or fourth, but we, we divided one of them up into three. So actually, this is going to be your seventh time on the show. And 
eighth time, if you count a best of episode that you were featured in along with uh, Charles Baxter and Jim Shepard, which was episode 429 for our super fan listeners. You, your first appearance was way back in number 78, uh, where we talked about Jane Eyre, Ford, Maddox Ford, and James Baldwin. And then we, we talked about your writing book, The Hidden Machinery. And in, in 267, we ranked our favorite Scottish writers and talked about your novel, The Boy in the Field. And then we've been talking about Boswell's Life of Johnson, which we're going to do again today. So I'm wondering... When you were a little girl growing up in Scotland, did you ever dream that you would one day be the featured guest on episode 500 of the History of Literature podcast? You know, oddly, I it never occurred to me that this was <laughs> one of the wonderful things that could happen in my life. I, I was obviously I was a child of limited imagination. <laughs> <laughs> Too busy cowering in the the presence of Percy the Bad Chick, I suppose. <laughs> Right, running across the heather. (laughs) Okay, so we're going to talk about Boswell in a moment, but I wanted to explain a little bit about what we're going to do first. I've been on this quest for a year or so, asking guests what they would choose as the last book they they will ever read, what their preference would be, and I'm trying to get close to an answer myself. So today, you and I are going to listen to a few responses that have come in, and then we'll discuss life and literature and turn to Dictionary Johnson and Corsica Boswell, as they were nicknamed by their contemporaries. So don't tell me your answer yet, but I'm curious what you thought of the question uh, when you heard it. Did a, a single book pop into your head immediately, or were you wrestling with a bunch of them, or, or was it hard to even think of one? I think maybe uh, definitely no book popped into my mind. Mm, I, mm-hmm. I I thought, actually, what a terrifying question. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It's sort of, um, it came in from a listener. And what I liked about it was I felt like the question was close to the question of what book would you take to a desert island? But that has such a different connotation. It's that's the book that you'd want to sustain you that, you know, you could read and reread. Maybe it would be something about survival uh, or something that would uh, help you pass the time or or keep you sane or something like that. This question really puts you in a whole different set of circumstances. And uh, the, the responses have just been this wide range of amazing uh, books and and just experiences that people are hoping to have. And so why don't we go to our first one, uh, Kimberly Brock, who is the author of the novel The Lost Book of Eleanor Dare, which revisits the mystery of Roanoke Island. So let's listen. Okay, we are here with the author of The Lost Book of Eleanor Dare. Kimberly Brock, thank you for joining me for this special question. Okay, thank you. So you're an expert in lost books, but I wanted to ask you about last books. This question comes from a (laughs) listener, and I'm trying to figure out how best to answer it. So I'm asking everyone to help me come up with ideas. Kimberly Brock, what do you want your last book to be? This is the last book you will ever read. You can choose one already published or describe one that has not yet been written. Mm, Okay. I don't know. Mm. Like when I think about that, I think, <laughs> do I want it to comfort me? Yes. Do I want it to be something familiar? Do I want this book to tell me what comes next? 
I don't know. Yes, that's what I, oh, I wrestle with all that too. Do I want it to be something spiritual to help me make the transition into what comes next? Yeah. Do I want it to be something I've never read so I'm interested and excited? Or do I want it to be my the most favorite book I've ever had of something that will just, I know will be a, a great comfort to me? I, I just, I cannot figure out how to approach I don't this. No, like, would it be, are you looking for nostalgia or do you want answers? I guess you have to pick one or the other. Yeah. And my thought is I loved being read to as a child. Mm -hmm. I love to listen to somebody read to me. And this is funny because I don't really enjoy listening to audiobooks. I'm very particular about audiobooks now as an adult, but I do like to listen to someone read to me. And I love books that have beautiful language. So those are the titles that I think about if I lay dying and I want to listen to my last book. And that's the other thing, you know, what's the situation here? Is this, do I know this is happening or, but when I think about being read to as a last book, I think about Alice Hoffman Oh. and I do, she has a little book that I pick up and read frequently. It's just one of those that I pick up and read at random. I'll just open it up and sit down and read for a few minutes. It's called Blackbird House mm-hmm. and it's, full of short stories. Each chapter is a story about a house and all of the generations that have lived there have a story. And I love the language in that book. So I think if this is just for my ear, I just want somebody to read that aloud to me. Yeah. Cause you know, it would put you in a, a calm place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And your love of language is there. You know, I think that's part of being a writer. You would just, it would kind of sail you out on words. That would be beautiful. Oh, that is a beautiful way to put it because you've always loved language. It's been the one thing since you were a, a little girl when we did the full conversation that we had with you. You talked about how you were always telling stories and you were the one that the teachers always had to tell to be quiet and so on. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like saying, it's like a little bit of a farewell to this life. Yeah. Mm. I guess so. Okay. Well, thank you very much for that. We are encouraging all of our listeners to seek out The Lost Book of Eleanor Dare. Kimberly Brock, thank you so much for joining me on The History of Literature. Thank you. It was great. Okay. That was Kimberly Brock. Margot, what do you think? I very much appreciated what she said about maybe we have to choose between nostalgia or answers. Right. The comfort of nostalgia or the search for answers. Yeah. And how she finally sort of embraced her own lifelong love of language as the thing thing that was really most crucial in her reading from when she started as a child to when she answered your question and how that was the thing that mattered to her the most. Yeah, Um, right. And brought her back to Alice Hoffman's The Blackbird House. Right. And I chose this one because almost nobody chooses short stories. They want a long novel or they want a children's book or they want poetry have been the kind of the most common. And and I'm wondering why you think that is. I do wonder about that. I mean, people are constantly saying to short story writers, why don't you write a novel? But Almost no one ever says to a novelist, why don't you turn to short stories? Um, And 
you're asking that question on a day when I'm I'm going to be teaching the wonderful work of Alice Munro and yeah. of course a, a paramount short storyteller. Is that the right word? Paramount? Yeah, um, I think so. She yeah. And and her short stories are as good as novels. They give us novels in a more compressed space. And and I just came to the realization the other day that I feel the same way about Henry James, that his novella-length fiction, his long short stories, I prefer them to his novels. I would not, I think I could not go that far because of my ad- adoration for Portrait of a Lady. Oh, but, right. <laughs> but I I do agree his novellas are superb and do so much. But yeah, perhaps short stories still remain a slightly guilty pleasure that mm-hmm. we enjoy them, but we feel when it comes to the moment, we ought to choose a big book or a substantial book or a sub- or an important book. Yeah, right. Another issue that came up with Kimberly Brock that comes up now and then is audiobooks. And I always imagine myself alone with a book reading in silence, but but several people have mentioned wanting to hear the book read to them either by a loved one or a great rendition by by someone masterful. What do you think of that question? For me, that opened a new door. Um, I haven't been listening to audiobooks so much recently, but listening to what Kimberly said, I I thought, oh, I must come back to this because she reminded me of the pleasure of being read to and Mm. how I miss that. Yeah, right. Okay. Anything else strike you about Kimberly Brock's choice or should we move to the next one? Um, I think what the other thing that struck me was, and a couple of other people um, I who I answered your question. I think may have said something similar. Is that um, you know she could dip into the book at any place. Mm-hmm. There was a story. It was like a house. She could go into any room, and I thought that was a, a lovely attribute. Yeah, and I think that's the 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 feeling. I think people have said that about novels too, and and I think that's part of. A function of the question, because people don't want to think that they're reading and the clock is ticking, you know, and oh, if I keep turning pages, that means I'm getting closer to the end. (laughs) uh, So the idea that, well, maybe I have this book and it's the sort of book that I can enjoy reading on page 100 or I could flip to page 200 or I could go, I could jump around and move in and out uh, is something that kind of appeals to people as a way of easing into the moment, so to speak. Yeah, I would completely agree, yes. Okay, so let's hear the next one from uh, John Ramsden, author of The Poet's Guide to Economics. Okay, here we are with John Ramsden, author of The Poet's Guide to Economics. John, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This is the last book you will ever read. You can name one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. Well, it's a wonderful question. Um, <laughs> and it, it certainly gives one to think. I feel, however, it's a slightly sort of presumptuous question because in, in a way, you should treat every book as if it's the last one. After all, you, you know not the hour nor the day. Um, the Grim Reaper could come at any moment and it could be a very bad thing to be caught with your kind of literary pants down. Uh, <laughs> I imagine, you know, turning up at the pearly gates and seeing a, a very cross St. Peter waving a copy of um, Fifty Shades Grey, and sending you off for a 
extremely lengthy mental equivalent of a colonic irrigation <laughs> before you know, had any question of paradise. And you mumble like, I just didn't know. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I was planning to read something better soon. <laughs> you took me too soon. <laughs> so, well, uh, I, I think, you know, a big thank you to your listener because it, it makes me realize that you know, yeah. once you be jolly careful about you know, not waste time <laughs> reading rubbish because it could, in fact, be the last book you ever read. That's right, yeah. Having said that, I suppose, you know, most people, you'd be very lucky to get to a reasonable old age and still, you know, die a sort of sudden, unexpected and painless death. So the, the odds are that, you know, you may know that, you know, the day is coming and that you're probably not feeling very well in the process. So while I, I do think, you know, you should try to read really good books written by really good writers, be they ancient or modern. You know, we mustn't be too solemn about it because you might need cheering up on your sickbed. So I think I'd go for something that was sort of, you know, reasonably life affirming that I could sort of chuckle over. And then I thought, well, as we've talked about my book, I might think, well, what in my book of the books mentioned in my book, you know, what might I think about? Walter Scott seems to me the sort of person I could read on my deathbed. I mean, I mentioned Rob Roy, you know, it's, you know, you love him or loathe him, but I, he makes me laugh and he carries me along in this sort of wonderful energy and all these wonderful characters he creates. So that Rob Roy, I think I mentioned that would be a candidate. But the, the other one that I thought as a candidate was Robinson Crusoe, because uh, the other thing about a great book is you can sort of daydream about it, waft in and out of it. And I think Robinson Crusoe wouldn't be a bad one if you're, you know, being stranded on a desert island isn't quite the same as being dead. But I suppose it would, you know, maybe help you get into a sort of frame of mind and it would certainly keep you amused and reading. Anyway, thank you to your listener for that wonderful question. Yeah, Robinson Crusoe is interesting because it is kind of a book about being resourceful in new surroundings. And maybe that is something that we should all be ready to take with us when we get ready to journey to the other side. Yes, indeed. Who knows what awaits us? <laughs> and hopefully we will interpret the footprints correctly when we get there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, John Ramsden, thank you for joining me on the History of Literature. Pleasure. Thank you. Okay, there we go. Margo, what did you think of John Ramsden's choices? I thought one of them made perfect sense, and one of them to me was just outrageous. The idea that I would spend my last hours with Walter Scott, <laughs> whom I've detested ever since childhood, when every single one of my relatives had the collected Scott on their bookshelves. I just was thinking, no, no, how could you do this? <laughs> he loved Rob Roy. He said it would... It makes him laugh and carries him along. I, I, I know. And I, I mean, the thing is, I'm on very shaky ground here because I've never read Rob Roy. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought, I don't believe that I'm wrong about Walter Scott, um, even though the Scottish nation owes him an enormous debt. And I adored visiting his house, Abbotsford, a couple of years ago. Yeah. Still don't think I'm going to be opening Rob Roy anytime soon. <laughs> but Robinson Crusoe, you would uh, give, you rank that a little higher, it sounds like. Robinson Crusoe, I thought, oh, what an excellent choice, because it's this wonderful combination of meditation and adventure and mm. 
spies and um, how do we fend for ourselves in difficult times? Yeah, right. And there's a lot in Robinson Crusoe. Uh, if I don't think I've ever read the full unabridged version, but I know there's a lot in there that doesn't make it through into the 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 films or the television versions or the abridged versions or the children's books and that kind of thing. And so I would sort of enjoy that it would have both the familiar and well-trod ground of the footsteps and so on, but it would also have some some whole new areas where I could kind of get into the mind of Daniel Defoe in areas that I haven't explored before. Yeah, no, I haven't read the book since I was maybe 10 years old and I was given it as a birthday present. And, you know, but it lives in on in my imagination. And then there's Elizabeth Bishop's wonderful poem about uh, Crusoe in England and um, isn't Coatsia mm. have a novel foe? I mean, the story has sort of entered the bloodstream. Yeah, right. And the character of of just Robinson Crusoe is this this kind of uh, you know, in a way, he's an adventurer, and in another way, he's sort of this victim of of circumstance, but he makes the best of it. Yeah, he's a very reluctant adventurer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right. And both these books, uh, Rob Roy and, and Robinson Crusoe, these are the big books that we were talking about earlier. A lot of people have chosen Dickens or Victor Hugo or George Eliot or the, the huge world-creating books like Tolstoy and, and Toni Morrison. And and I guess the question I always have is, would you want it to end? Would you want to get to the end of the book or just kind of be inside that world and and um, you know what? What's the best for your state of mind? But I guess that's that's probably getting to be kind of a personal choice. Yeah, and and there's no. I mean, you don't didn't make a rule against rereading. So if one right. felt the pages of Robinson Crusoe dwindling, one could <laughs> turn back. Right. <laughs> you know, in a sort of Borgesian way, um, we could keep reading and rereading. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, so no little surge of pride that he had chosen Rob Roy as a, a Scottish author. Well, but Daniel Defoe is also in many ways a Scottish author. I mean, he, uh, you know, Alexander Selkirk, the model for Robinson Crusoe, um, lived on the coast of Fife. So there's a strong Scottish connection there, too. Right. Okay. Okay, Margot, our next one is Professor Josiah Ober from Stanford University, who is an expert in ancient Greek literature and philosophy. Let's listen. Okay, we are joined now by Professor Josiah Ober of Stanford University, who is an expert in ancient Greece and its application to our world today. Professor Ober, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can choose a work that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. So I'm going to cheat and say I'm going to read two works against each other, okay. both of which I know reasonably well, but neither of which I feel I've truly mastered. The first is the first work I ever read in the original Greek, and that's Plato's Apology of Socrates. Ah, uh, 
Yeah. Which I continue to think is one of the most profound, most moving work in Western literature. It raises all kinds of questions of the relationship of the individual to the community, the responsibility of the individual to the community possibilities for free speech and so on. You never get to the bottom of it, but I weep every time I come to the end when Socrates says, the jurors, and so you go and I go, and which one of us goes to the better place? Only the God can say. Mm. I want to read it against, however, one of the great works of the Eastern tradition that I also began reading really as a very young man, although sadly not in Chinese, and this is the Tao Te Ching. Um, mm. uh-huh. It is, once again, one of these works that I never feel I'm getting to the bottom of. Every time I go to it, I feel there's something new and profound. The image of water as the weakest of things and the strongest of things is, you know, for me, one of the basic philosophical puzzles. They're both so beautifully written. And so I want to be reading those two works as the last things that are going through my mind at the, at the end of my life. It seems like what you're covering with those two is putting in your mind the questions, who was I? Who have I been? In the first one, you have, how did I fit in with my fellow human beings? And how was I a participant in a community and a society? And in the second one, who was I as a human being? What my body, what kind of form of matter did I have? And how did I fit into nature and the world and the universe around me? Exactly so. Very, very nicely put. Those two works work together to ask the the big questions that I suppose are not readily answerable. But if we're not asking them, then maybe we're not doing all we should be as human beings. Mm, That's beautiful. Professor Josiah Ober, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks again for the opportunity. Okay. So I like the idea of two books to read against one another. What did you think of his choices? They sound like a perfect a perfect pairing, a perfect complement to each other. Yeah. Yeah, they really are. And, and and a few people have chosen the Bible, although not as many as I'd thought. I think it's, it's so far at least with my guests, they've been more works of philosophy have come out and not as many as novels or poetry, but um, still a sizable number. And is that something that you would consider turning to? Is a work of philosophy, do you think that would be too much, too much effort and too much mystery? Or would that give you a kind of springboard to think about the things you want to think about? I think it isn't. I think I probably wouldn't choose philosophy, but not quite for the reasons you give. I think it's because Fiction has always been where I turned for solace and mm. companionship. Yeah, right. And to learn about the world. So even though I studied philosophy at university, I still probably wouldn't list a philosophy book at that crucial time. Mm. Right. Okay. Let's turn to our last one uh, that we're going to listen to. Professor Richie Robertson, an expert in Goethe and Nietzsche. Let's hear what he chose as his last book. 
We are here with Richie Robertson, expert on Goethe and Nietzsche, among many other scholarly pursuits. Professor Robertson, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either name one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. It all depends on my circumstances. Mm -hmm. Let's assume for the sake of argument that I've been taken into hospital Mm -hmm. with some an illness which would like to be, to be terminal fairly soon. So you know. Yep. What book would I want to take with me? Yeah, right. I think I think I would take one of my favorite books, namely Boswell's Life of Johnson. Oh, yes. For one thing, oh. one thing because I can dip into it and start reading anywhere. Mm-hmm. For another, because it's full of characters mm-hmm. and who connect me with human life and history. Yeah, right. Ah, they're such good company. That's how I feel when I think yes. back to when I read the book and whenever I dip into it myself. I I feel like this is so much fun. I can imagine myself at these dinner parties. I can imagine myself on these <laughs> on these journeys with these two and just feeling like I'm I'm surrounded by friends. But remember, one day Bozzle said to Johnson about the previous evening. You know, Johnson said we had good talk. And Bottle said, yes, sir, you tossed and gored several persons. <laughs> right, yeah. I want to be a fly on the wall. I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to be trying to say things that uh, Johnson can then skewer me <laughs> with. More like it, yes. <laughs> okay, that's a wonderful choice. Professor Robertson, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, there we go, Margo. I think uh, you can probably guess why I chose this one. Uh, It is on my short list. Let's turn to Boswell's Life of Johnson, which I understand you are still reading. I am still reading. Um, Happily, I just got through book six, so I have, um, I think, three or four more to go. Mm, mm-hmm. So when you take a break from it, what do you think about? Do you, what do you remember about it when you're not reading it? Do you think, uh, does it just leave your mind or do you think I would enjoy getting back into the Boswell Johnson world? I think Dr. Johnson is, is a wonderful companion because he engages with almost everyone and everything. He, mm-hmm. he I mean, best sense he is opinionated um nothing is neutral for him and so when i'm not reading the book i I try to keep some of his lively curiosity in mind um i try to keep some of the lessons i've learned from him in mind yeah right i've got an example here that i love there was uh, well a couple of them actually come up I, i i don't know if you've ever heard this anecdote but uh, the the show Seinfeld when it before it began it really grew out of Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld just walking around New York City and pointing things out to each other and they enjoyed that so much that they thought um, you know maybe we could make a whole show about this but it it was you know there's a quote in in uh, Boswell's Johnson where it, he's talking about Johnson and he says he made two or three peculiar observations as when Shun, the botanical garden, is not every garden a botanical garden? Yeah. <laughs> and it just, it's the sort of thing where you think, 
that's kind of a fun way to go through life, especially if you have a companion to do it with, is to say, well, isn't this absurd? And isn't that person crazy? And and look at this. Isn't this something to marvel over? And, and how curious even the smallest of things can be. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think one of the things that's so striking about Johnson is that he really believes companionship and conversation are art forms. Mm -hmm. There are quite a number of years when he publishes, I mean, there are years when he's very energetic, but there are other years when he publishes nothing and writes very little. But conversation for him is, it, it's not its not gossip or, um, you, you know, leisure exactly. It, it, it's... Uh, something you aspire to and engage in and uh, think how to make better. Right. And that you're, you're kind of, even though you might think, especially for someone who was making his living with his pen, he would think, well, this is a waste of time. This conversation is not going any, anywhere. It just disappears into the ether once it's done. But instead he seemed to, to view it as, important for his soul and for his mind and and as a form of improving himself and also the world around him to engage with uh, all of your powers. Yes, and one of I was very struck in one of one of the pages I read how Boswell says something about argument and he says, you know, I don't feel I'm, I'm in effect, he says, I don't feel I'm doing a good job if people don't argue with me, if they don't, if I don't cause fireworks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. He did have that great line about an argument where he said, sir, I have found you an argument, but I am not obliged to find you an understanding. <laughs> I, I hadn't heard that one. And he has so many, so many great lines. Yeah. So this was the other anecdote I was thinking of when uh, you were talking about the way he engaged with life. And this one is about the way he embraced the literary fray. And and the the passage here is, once when somebody produced a newspaper in which there was a letter of stupid abuse of Sir Joshua Reynolds, of which Johnson himself came in for a share, pray, said he, let us have it read aloud from beginning to end, which being done, he with a ludicrous earnestness and not directing his look to any particular person called out, are we alive after all this satire? And I just love... I love the way he he says, let's have it read aloud. You know, he like, okay, they're going to criticize me. Let's hear what it says. And it's it's humble in a way. It's it's also, um, you know, there's some some uh, braggadocio there. Like it's it's very much a feeling of, well, we're put on this earth and I'm in this business of literature and and the literary phrase, so to speak, and. And I'm writing things and I'm expressing opinions and someone has an opinion about me. So let's hear it and we'll we'll see what it does to us. And, and then he, he has that wonderful line about, are we alive after all this satire? No, that seems so perfectly Johnsonian and, and reminds me of his response when people pointed out errors in the dictionary, of which yeah. there were quite a number. <laughs> For instance, he, conf he reversed windward and leeward. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and when 
someone pointed out these mistakes, he would just doff his hat and say, ignorance, sheer ignorance is responsible. <laughs> and of course, what could the accuser do at that point? Right. It's an unabashed admission of, of error. Yes. Yes, it really. And, and that's one of the things that I try to take as a life lesson from Johnson is, is the feeling of you don't need to be so afraid of your own shadow. You don't need to be so afraid of making mistakes. You, you can put yourself out there and be bigger than your mistakes and be bigger than your criticism. And you can accept it and embrace it and move forward because after all, you know, there's there's no there's no reason to let a critic stop you. If you are being as great as you can, that's you know that's good enough, and and let the chips fall where they may. Yes, no, he's that 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 is inspiring. And another thing that I was really struck by reading is that I mean he's not by any means a socialist, and indeed when one of his hostesses. Um, you know, sort of argues for socialism in a mild form, he turns to her and says something like, well, let us ask your housemaid to dinner then yeah. <laughs> uh, to, to rebut her. But Boswell does say over and over again how he talks the same to everyone. Mm. Mm-hmm. He, doesn't, he doesn't change his his tone or his manner of speech and he addresses almost everyone um when he's on his rambles around london late at night he's often talking to people and giving away his money um, what money he has yeah and, and that's very endearing right it almost seems like he you know he has every reason to condescend to just about everyone uh, you know, he's he's clearly brilliant, and he he knows his mind is working on a level that that the people he encounters can't match. But it's almost as if he thinks, well, it would be it would diminish me to be condescending. So why should I be? I'm going to. Uh, that's not how I want to go through life. Yeah. And of course, I mean, I think we tend to forget that when they met. Johnson was 54 and Boswell was only 23. Mm-hmm. So his friendship with Boswell was an act of generosity. Yeah. <laughs> and there was no reason for him to take on this young man who, among other things, was Scottish, uh, which brought up all Johnson's prejudices right, against Right, right. <laughs> and yet he was so generous and welcoming to, to Boswell. Right. Okay, so how do you think Boswell's Life of Johnson would be for a last book? I think for me, it would not be entirely satisfying. Mm, mm -hmm. But I can absolutely see why it could be very satisfying for somebody else. Right. It's that feeling of being nostalgic for an era in which you didn't live. Uh, it's sort of once you've read the book and if you love that world and love the the parties and the conversations and the observations and just the feeling of walking around with these two and the moments uh, of tenderness as well as the the humor, uh, you can see where 
somebody would just say, that's a world I enjoyed being in, and and maybe that's a place where I could get into the proper state of mind. And it's on my short list, but I'm, I don't think I'm going to choose it. Um, but the question for you, what would you like your last book to be? I have been dreading this moment ever since you <laughs> told me about it. And I will confess that I have been here in Iowa City. I have been stopping people in the streets, um, asking my students this question when we ought to be talking about their work, um, being a real pest about it um, to all kinds of people. <laughs> and I think... I think the answer is that I, at the moment, I, I absolutely cannot choose. Um, mm. You know, one of the things I thought was, well, if I do choose, then what would be my relationship with the book I'd chosen? Yeah, would you taint it? I've wondered about that, too. If it would make you afraid to read the book or you'd, yes. you'd think, well, I better hold off because this this is the one I'm going to want on my nightstand 20 years from now. Yeah, or 50 or, years from now or whenever, whenever it is. Or if I really feel this strongly about this book, should I be reading it right now? Because yeah. I I mean, I think one of your um, people said, you know, we never know the hour or the day. You know, what if I'm yeah. running over walking to teach Alice Monroe? Um, right. You know, wouldn't my last thought be, but I, but I never read. <laughs> I didn't get to it. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Right. If you choose that, maybe you just need to read a little bit all the time. <laughs> so I think it's a great question for what it makes one think about. Mm -hmm. But I think um, one of the people we listened to, uh, maybe Josiah Ober said, you know, these are these are questions we're never going to get the answers to, but we need if we're not asking the questions, we're doing something wrong. Right. Right. I've got the quote here because I thought it was so beautiful. If we're not asking these questions, maybe we're not doing all we can as human beings. Yeah, that is that's it. It's, yeah. And I thought that was such a beautiful and astute thing to say. And so I think this question about the last book it's maybe one of those questions, but so far I have not been able to come up with a fitting answer. Yeah. I'm also put in mind of uh, something that happened to my wife and me when our kids were little and we were living in New York City. And we thought, you know, it's been years since we've had a night out, just the two of us, so let's have a date night and we'll get a babysitter and we'll go to a movie, one of our favorite things to do and, and all of this. And, and then um, we were, the, the movie we were planning to see, there weren't a lot of good choices. And the, one of the, and I said, well, you know, when I was on my way to work today, I, I saw there's a huge poster for uh, Nacho Libre with Jack Black. So maybe we should go to that kind of diverting. And then we uh, started talking about, you know, the cost of the sitter and the cost of the, we'd take taxi cabs because we wouldn't want to leave the children alone for too long. And then if we, you know, had dinner or if we did anything like that and, and the cost of the tickets and we were adding all of this up and then saying, you know, and then they're not going to sleep very well. So tomorrow is going to be awful and all of this. And then we said, are we really going to do all this for Nacho Libre? 
you know, we're, we're, <laughs> it's not Lawrence of Arabia here. We're Citizen Kane or something. We're, we're going to, we're going to spend all this money and, and endure all of this hardship for Nacho Libre. What are we thinking? And it, the question of my last book does kind of make me think, well, at least I, I'm not going to be able to choose what my last book is, but I can at least make sure that my last book is not something that's unworthy. And so if I have to, you know, remind myself that I don't want to just read the Nacho Libre equivalent of books, and it's good for me to engage with the very best of literature and poetry, or at least the the things that I enjoy the most, whether that's Agatha Christie or, you know, something. It doesn't have to be a, uh, not everything has to be crime and punishment. But it does remind me that reading is such an important part of my life and has been that I at least want to make sure that what I have is something that I I truly am enjoying the experience, and I think it's beneficial for me in some way. And Dr. Johnson, I mean, I'm not sure he'd have been able to answer this question, but he does say that a man should read five hours a day. Mm, yeah, right. Or I think more accurately, he says a young man. I think he tapers off as he gets older. Right. He he became busier writing and, and having those conversations as he grew older. Yeah. And indeed, Boswell takes him to task for his working habits, because when he first meets Johnson, Johnson's habit is to stop whatever he's doing at 4 p.m., and leave his house, and he seldom gets home before two in the morning. Mm, right. And, you know, Boswell <laughs> reproaches him for this um, profligacy, you know, for wearing himself out in these ways. <laughs> well, I want to conclude with one last uh, quote from Boswell, who says, this one's not in the life of Johnson. He says, We cannot tell the precise moment when friendship is formed. As in filling a vessel drop by drop, there is at last a drop which makes it run over. So in a series of acts of kindness, there is, at last, one which makes the heart run over. Margot Livesey, we at the podcast have had many drops of kindness from you. Our cup has run over once again. Thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you so much, Jack. It it really is a delight to talk about Johnson. I mean, he accompanies me through my days, and it's all thanks to you that I came back to him. So thank you. You're welcome. And I have to say, when you were talking about uh, stopping all of the people on the street and so on to ask them this question, I thought, well, you've I've deputized you. You're you're doing what I've been doing for the past year to my guests. <laughs> Yeah, it it this like a stone. The ripples are spreading further and further from your listeners. That's a wonderful question. And did the listener, by any chance, tell you what their last book would be? Uh, no, they didn't. They didn't. They just uh, posed that as a question, and it was part of an email that had a hundred different ideas for. Uh, episodes I should do, authors I should cover, uh, ways to approach different topics and different questions to ask. And I was reading all of this and, and it, you know, it's almost like uh, eating uh, whipped cream or something. You sort of, the first spoonful you can take and then after a while you just feel like you can't take any more. But then this question came at the end and I thought, oh my, that's a question 
I would not know how to answer, and I've never heard it asked before, but it I just love the way that it, uh, what it brings out from people as they try to uh, wrestle with that question. Okay, Margo, thank you so much for joining me. A deep pleasure. Thank you. Okay, there we go. No celebration sound? I thought we were going to have a celebration sound. Okay, my thanks to Margo Live. <laughs> Okay, my thanks to Margot Livesey for joining me and to our listeners and our emailers, Thanasis, Sarah, Christine, and Ray, and to Mike Palindrome for supplying us with those two top fives of his, and to David Berman, Sneaky Good, and to our past guests for giving us their last books, Kimberly Brock, John Ramston, Josiah Ober, and Richie Robertson. My thanks to Boswell and Johnson, and of course to you, dear listener, for sticking with me through thick and thin, I reduced myself to a heartbeat and found a pile of books. Well, later in life, I reduced myself to a broken soul, a naked and quivering thing, and came down to my basement studio and found a pile of podcast episodes and a whole great big community of listeners. It has been quite a ride these past 500, and we'll keep going to see what's out there. We've gone way beyond the limits of whatever I imagined this thing could be. And now that we're out here, having slipped the bounds of the atmosphere and are zipping through the heavens, we might as well keep going to discover new worlds, to engage with new creatures, and to let ourselves be bedazzled by the sight of all these stars. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. Time's 500. And we'll see you next time.